It's running on empty. Scores of people trying to cope. They've come to the end of their proverbial rope. Young eyes are wandering, looking for direction. Make sure we point them to his resurrection. The clock's ticking. We're on our dime. Hey, church, rise up. It's our time. Good morning, church. It's our time. It is our time. Our spiritual ancestors have run the race of faith, and their race is over with, but ours has just begun. We are those who are to take the baton of the gospel of Jesus Christ and run into a lost and dying world, sharing with them the good news of Jesus Christ. It is our time. You see, that's why we are beginning 2017 with this sermon series. It is about the gospel shaping our lives. I am convinced that the better we get it in the life of the church, the more effective we're going to be in sharing it in our community. Amen? If we really understand what the church is and what we are meant to be, we will be a light, a beacon of hope in a lost and dying world. And when you stop and think about it, what we have to offer them is profound. I love the way that uh, Peter put it last week. When we were together last week, we were in 1 Peter chapter 2, and he told us that we are a chosen race. We are an eternally elected personally selected people of God for the express purpose to proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Amen? This is why we're here. This is why we've been redeemed. This is our part of the journey. It's our time. And it's time for us to show the world the difference that Jesus Christ makes. And that difference is profound. Let me show you. And this is what we're talking about through this series, through this month and next. The difference we make is this. We are a united, generous, truthful, serving, and joyful people in the midst of a dark, divided, stingy, confused, selfish, and suffering world. If we get this right, Oh my, how bright our light. And so we are going down this pathway together to talk about what it means to be the church and what it means to be shaped by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because I don't know if you know this or not, our world needs this so, so bad. Today, We're going to talk about just how badly our world needs what we have to show them and to offer them. As today, we're going to look at this idea of being a united church in a divided world. I think this is very timely. I think this message in the first service was, was, wow, I really didn't understand who we were meant to be. I pray it has that same impact in this service as well. Why don't we pray together? Because we really do need the Holy Spirit to make sense of the truths we're about to look at. So let's bow our heads together in the presence of God and ask Him for help. Father, uh, you have a remarkable plan for this world. 
And it is a plan that embraces um, this unique people, the eternally elected, the personally selected race of people that you are calling out and calling together on this earth. It's about us, Father. It's about the church that you're making. I pray that today we will see just how powerful and how bright our light can be if we get this right. Walk us into your word. Challenge our hearts and our stereotypes and our prejudices, I pray. In Jesus' name. And the people of God said, amen. Get ready. Because today could be a life transformation time for you. I don't know about you, but I thought this past week was a perfect microcosm of the spirit of division that happens to be in not just our nation, but really the world. Think about it with me. This past week, on Monday, we had MLK Day. How many had that day off? Yeah, yeah. Wasn't it great? How many enjoyed that day off? Awesome. Yeah. MLK Day was actually put in place by Ronald Reagan in order to honor the great civil rights leader who gave his life to deal with the issue of racism in our culture. So that was Monday. And then today, I don't know how many of you know this or not, but today is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. Another day put aside by Ronald Reagan. He seemed to like to do holidays. What a cool guy. So this is another holiday put, put aside for the specific purpose of, of valuing life in the womb valuing children who have yet to break forth from the wound and, and, and to breathe air in this culture. You know, people say to me, Pastor Bill, are you looking forward to being a grandfather? I am a grandfather. I am. Just because my little granddaughter, Eola, hasn't broken the womb yet doesn't mean I'm not a granddad. The moment she was conceived, I was a grandfather. Amen? That is what this day is about. It is to value the, the human life no, what, no matter what stage of development it may be in. So, bookends on this week. We had MLK Day, and we have a Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, and then on Friday, in the middle of these very important, profound truths, we had this thing called the inauguration of the 45th President of the United States of America, and yesterday we had the, some of the greatest... Uh, protests we've seen in our country's history. Into this day and age, a time of remarkable fragmentation, a time of incredible um, differences, Jesus Christ has called his church to show the world what unity looks like. This is our purpose, church. This is our time, church, we get the privilege to show the world what unity in diversity really looks like. How to actually pull off multiculturalism without having it blow up in your face. That, my friends, is what the church is all about. Take your Bibles. Let's pursue the scriptures. Don't take my word for it. Let's take the word of God's word for it. Join me this morning in Luke chapter 4. We're going to look at two major portions of Scripture today. We're going to begin in Luke chapter 4. An interesting story early on in Jesus' um, earthly ministry. Um, and in this story, what I want you to notice is this. Jesus' kingdom. Jesus' kingdom embraces ethnic and cultural distinctions or diversity. Jesus' kingdom embraces ethnic and cultural uh, distinctions or diversity. So if you have your Bibles, we're in Luke chapter 4. We're going to begin reading in verse 16. 
Now, for those who didn't bring your Bible, I just want to say I will put it up here. The type is fairly small, and I did that on purpose so you get a Bible and bring it with you. No, I'm just kidding. There's just a lot here. All right, here we go. Let me share with you this story. It says this, and he, verse 16, Jesus, came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. So just prior to this, Jesus had initiated his earthly ministry. And he was going around proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. Repent and follow me, for the kingdom of God is at hand. So he was going around proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and he was performing miracles. He was healing people. So now, this boy who grew up in Nazareth is coming home. And the whole town was like, Local boy makes good, he's come home. So I can imagine the whole town is turning out to this. And so it says, and as it was his custom, he went up to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. This is the religious temple on Saturday. And it says, he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. It says, and then he unrolled the scroll and found the place where this was written. Now, this comes from Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. And he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me. The word anointed there in the Hebrew is is the word that we get Messiah from. The word there in the Greek is where we get the word Christ from. He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So he reads these two verses from Isaiah chapter 61, and he does a mic drop. Boom! Rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, walked over, and he sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Could it be? He's a Messiah, the Messiah, the Messiah from Nazareth, Nazareth, Nazareth. We'll be famous. This is awesome. What incredible news this is. And then Jesus said this. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Boom! Awesome. And this is what it says. And all spoke well of him. And they marveled at his gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. I like that. (laughs) The gracious words coming out of his mouth. This is cool. So tomorrow, the uh, Nazareth Gazette says this. Jesus is Messiah. Whoa, we are going to be famous. This little spot on the map is going to be well known. This is wonderful. But it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop there. It goes on. And it says this. And they began to say, wait a minute. Isn't this Joseph's son? Now, wait a minute. Aren't you the son of the carpenter? How can you be the Messiah if we know you as the carpenter's son who grew up in our village like any other kid did? And so Jesus now takes over the discussion. And notice what he says. And he said to them, doubtless, you will now quote to me this proverb. Physician, heal yourself. You know, what we have heard you did in Capernaum. Do in your hometown as well. Basically, they're saying this. Jesus knew they wanted this. We want to see a miracle, Jesus. You show us a miracle, and we'll think that maybe you're somebody other than Joseph's son. Show us a miracle, Jesus. Come on. 
What Jesus is about to do was very unexpected. You see, so long as they thought the kingdom was about them, and so long as they thought Messiah was there for them, they had an inappropriate and a misunderstanding about what the kingdom of God was going to be like. So Jesus is about to say a couple of things to them that are, are totally out of the blue, completely unexpected, and the reaction, as you will see, is very profound. So what Jesus does is this. He's just finished this idea. Truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his own hometown. Now he does this. In a truth, I tell you. And now he's sharing a story that comes from 1 Kings 17. Many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, or there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months. And a great famine came over all the land. So he's reminding them of this Old Testament story about a three and a half year famine that was so sore in the land that a lot of widows starved to death. But notice what he says. And Elijah, the prophet of God, was sent to none of the Israeli widows, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, which is a Phoenician city. You see, he didn't help any of the Jewish women. He went to the Gentiles and helped her. What? What? Then he goes on. He tells us another story that actually comes from 2 Kings chapter 5. It says this, And uh, there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only who? And he was from where? You see, there were a lot of leopards in, uh, leopards, lepers in Israel. Yeah, I don't think there's many leopards. Um, and and, and it basically it said this, and they didn't get healed. But the one that he did heal was a foreigner. And he was a Gentile. And he didn't heal the Jewish lepers. What Jesus is doing is he's saying is, is this. My kingdom is bigger than Nazareth. My kingdom is bigger than Israel. My kingdom is going to embrace different ethnic groups and different cultures than you have ever imagined. Do you think they got it? Do you think they understood what he was saying? Notice how this ends. When they heard these things, all the synagogue was filled with joy. Well, actually, no. They rose up to drive him out of town and brought him to the brow of a hill over which the town was built so that they could throw him down off the hill. They were furious. They were angry. They wanted to kill him. You know, I find it interesting. I find it fascinating that his claims to be Messiah didn't disturb them. But the claims that his kingdom would embrace other ethnicities and very different cultures made them so mad they wanted to kill him. You see, what Jesus is doing here is he is saying that the kingdom of God attacks the very heart of something called ethnocentrism. Ethnocentrism is the conviction or the feeling that one's own ethnic group is superior and should be treated as superior or privileged compared to other groups of people. 
And the Jewish nation felt that they were it. We are it. We're God's people. And Jesus kind of stuck a knife in that whole concept. And it made them furious. Because they were better than everybody else. We're a better country than everybody else. We have God. So ethnocentrism is a positive way that shows up in the negative effects called racism. Or even nationalism. These are the effects of someone who is in the grip of ethnocentrism. And I just want to say, it runs so deeply in the heart of people that we're not even aware how much it guides the way we look at others. We are so focused and so wrapped up in the reality of our own ethnicity, of our own culture, that we will ultimately fight for these things. And I want to tell you here and now that the kingdom of God is not about that. The kingdom of God is not about that. Ethnocentrism. Ethnocentrism. Somebody has said that this is possibly the genius of Trump. He found a way to tap into the ethnocentric feelings of the majority people in America, and he won. As we're going to look at it in a few minutes, um, the efforts of America to try and do multiculturalism doesn't work. We'll explain why. But we're also going to talk about why it does work in the church. Just before we do, I want to show you something that I found to be moving and challenging and beautiful. Uh, Elisha put me onto this video. Uh, apparently it's been on Facebook and all over the world. Uh, so you, maybe you've seen it. But it's a, a movie called The DNA Journey. And it comes out from a group called Momondo, which is an internet travel search engine, of all things. But I'd like you to notice this, this heart. This heart. Jesus' kingdom embraces ethnic and cultural distinctions. I'm proud to be English. My family have served and we've defended this country and have been to war for this country. I'm, I'm really patriotic about Bangladesh. Well, I am, I am 100% Icelandic, yeah, definitely. This is a Kurdish wedding with my mom in the traditional Kurdish clothes. We're just proud black, so that's it. Yeah, I think we are probably the best country in the world, if I'm honest. Think about other countries and other nationalities in the world. Are there any that you, you don't feel you, you get on with well or you, you won't like particularly? Germany. Yeah, I'm not a fan of the Germans. You might think they're a little bit Particularly India and Pakistan, probably, because of the whole, you know, the conflict. Because I have this side of me that's like, that hates mm. Turkish people. Not, not people, but the government. But French? No. We're just best, you know, it's just fact. I'm more important than you. I don't know you, but in my opinion, I am strong and I am, I am more important than a lot of people. How would you feel about taking a journey based on your DNA. Um, yeah, I feel very uh, intrigued. What could you possibly tell me that I don't know? So do you know how DNA works? So you get half from mum and half from dad, so 50% from each of them, and they get 50% from their parents, and back and back and back. And all those little bits of your ancestor, they filter down to make you you. 
I need you to spit in this tube for me. And you spit up to the little black line. That's a lot of spit. Right, the story of you is in that tube. What's it going to tell me? It's going to be, oh, yeah, you're French. And yeah. wait, your grandparents are French. And wait. 100% Bengali. Solid Iraqi. I'm Cuban. <laughs> Can you tell me that I'm English? No, I've told you. <laughs> or else. Jay. Come down, and join us. I'm a little bit nervous, I have to say. So you ready to find out your results? Will you read it out to us, please. Wow! Look at me. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God! All of them. Whoa! <laughs> no! No! Caucasus? Which was uh, Turkish? Yeah. <laughs> Eastern Europe, Spain, Portugal, Italy, Greece. I'm 32% British! <laughs> <laughs> what? Great Britain, 30%. Can we? 5%. German. <laughs> I'm Irish. Yeah. So I'm a Muslim Jew. Great Britain, 11%. Are you sure these results are mine? Eastern Europe. <laughs> Iceland has definitely moved closer to Europe now. I'm going to go a bit far right now, but this should be compulsory. There would be no such thing as like extremism in the world if people knew their heritage like that. Like, who would be stupid enough to think of such thing as like a pure race? In a way, we're all kind of cousins, in a broad sense. Mm. In a much more direct sense. You have a cousin in this room. Mm -mm. Turn around and guess who it is. <laughs> Wash? Yeah. What's that? Why don't you come down here and meet your cousin? I didn't know I did. This is like I, my heart's pounding right now. I swear to God. from everywhere by the way to this. <laughs> I'm a real man of the world. Wow, that's beautiful. Thank you. So would you like to travel to all of these places? <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> Isn't it amazing what happens when you realize that you are not an isolated person in a very big world, but in a very real way, we are all interconnected. Let me save you some money and a DNA test, okay? Here we go. Acts chapter 17 and verse 26, the Apostle Paul standing in Athens said this, that God has made from one blood every nation that lives on the face of the earth. 
You know, in an evolutionary world, we believe that we evolve, and some people are better than others because we're more ascended. But the truth of the matter is, we have all been put here as a direct creation of God with the image of God in us, which means everybody matters. We don't have the ability to stand in our pride and say, I'm better than you, if we really understand the truth of the Scripture. If we understand the truth of the Scripture. Jesus' kingdom embraces ethnic and cultural distinctions. But now, he has made of one blood all people. But now let's drill down and talk about the uniqueness of the people of God. Because secondly, I want you to notice that Jesus' blood rescues us and creates a radically new community. If you have your Bibles, join me in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 together. Uh, In Ephesians 2, what Paul is doing here is he is summing up the great unifying work of the salvation that Jesus Christ went to the cross to secure. So we have this beautiful section in Ephesians chapter 2. Now in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, we have this wonderful declaration of what it means to have a relationship with God. Notice these verses, and and these are just astounding. He said this, And you, you were dead in your trespasses and in your sins, totally uh, isolated from relationship to God, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Friends, why is our world so fractured? Why is it that nobody can get along? It is because Satan is actively at work bringing division everywhere he goes. You see, among whom we once all lived in the passions of our flesh. And we carried out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children under the wrath of God just like the rest of mankind. Say those two words with me. Nah, better than that, come on. Nah, nah, it's even better than that, come on. You see, if we did not have our lives intercepted by God, we would be on a course to eternity apart from Him. So in the middle of our world, in the middle of our lives, but God, this is the good news, this is the gospel, this is the beauty of what we have to share, but God being rich in mercy withholding from us the just judgment that we deserve because of the great love with which he has loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses he made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved amen it is nothing you do it is a gift and act of God And he raised us up with him, and he seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come, God might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. One of Paul's favorite phrases, in Christ, in Christ Jesus. Dear ones, it is by grace that you are saved through faith, and it is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. It is not the result of human efforts or works. So that way, no one can boast. We are his workmanship, recreated in Christ for good works, which God before 
prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So when Paul opens chapter 2, what he does is he shows us the beautiful message of the gospel which reconciles us to God, gives us eternal life. We become his child and we are now saved. Those here today who have this wonderful relationship with Jesus by repentance and faith say amen. Those here by repentance and faith in Jesus Christ say amen. Ah, oh, come on, this is good. But it by no means is that the end. You see, we've talked about personal salvation, personal reconciliation. But the plan of God is bigger than that. He now continues in chapter 2, verse 11. These words come right off what he just said. Therefore, I want you to remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. The circumcision here is the Jews which they were made by the flesh of hands. So they were circumcised by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and being without God in the world. Can I just say this is our world? This is everyone outside of Jesus Christ. There is no hope because they are without a relationship with God in Christ. That is everyone apart from Jesus. But now, but now, in Christ, his favorite term, in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by what? The blood of Christ. We were made all of one blood when God created us, and now the blood of Christ redeems us. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both, what's the word? He has made both one. And he has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostilities, anger, ethnocentrism that stands between me and somebody who's different than me. But now that I have been reconciled to God, God is reconciling me to different peoples from me. And he's doing this by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man, a new humanity. As Peter said, this is the, the um, chosen race in place of two. And making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body. Now he's referring to here the universal church, those who are truly uh, gods. He has reconciled us in one body, but the local church is the local expression of the universal church. So what he's talking about here should be true with us. And this happened through the cross, whereby killing the hostility. He came and preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access into one spirit to the Father. So that when you, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Please don't miss this. Jesus' purpose in coming to earth, in ultimately dying on the cross, in rising from the dead, was to do away with the hostilities that exist between us and God and bring reconciliation. But that isn't all. 
he also died and rose again to remove the hostilities that exist between peoples, bringing reconciliation amongst very different peoples, and in so doing, showing us the true power of the gospel. Amen? You see, it's one thing for you to say, yeah, I know God, I I, I know Jesus. It's another thing for somebody to walk into the midst of a very diverse group of people and see us worshiping the living God together. All of a sudden, it's like, how does this happen? Jesus. How can this be true? Jesus. How can people have a united in multiculturalism in the church and we can't do it in the world? Jesus. This is what he does And this is what he wants to do in and through his church even now. Friends, it's our time. It's our time to take the baton of the gospel and to show people what it looks like to live in relationship with the living God. Our world needs this. Our world needs this so, so badly. Francis Schaeffer, the great, great thinker and theologian, one time called Christian community the final apologetic. You know, we're not going to win arguments with people. They're going to have to see it. And in a very real way, it is our ability, in spite of our ethnicities and our cultural backgrounds, even our political views and our economic situations, to love one another. To love one another. That will prove to them what words alone could never do. The reality of the gospel is seen in personal reconciliation, but also in people's reconciliation under the headship of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is creating a new body. He is creating a new being. He is creating a new humanity. He is creating a third race. I said third race, not third Reich. Okay, so let's make sure we get these straight here. He is creating a third race, one that is very different than the world and thus can be a blazing light in a dark world. A new man, a new man, a new humanity, a new peoples. I want to camp for a few moments on this idea of a third race. A third race. Basically, it it means this. The first race is whatever race you happen to be. Second race is the reference point for those unlike you. What God is doing in his church is not abolishing either race, but initiating a third and uniquely new entity. Let me explain it a little further. I'm going to uh, uh, take some thoughts from a wonderful man of God by the name of J.D. Greer. Um, J.D. Greer has done a lot of thinking and writing and teaching and preaching into this idea. And I, I want to use what he has to say because he has gone further with it than I have. And I think what he says is profound. So he begins like this. The concept of a third race is a theological solution to the challenge of of racial integration within Christian churches. Essentially, this view seeks to define a Christian not as black or white or Asian or Arab, but as a 
third race, Christian. The distinctions that the world would use to classify us into two different races are dwarfed by the fact that in Christ there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. He continues, Paul even said that to the Jews he would become a Jew. How could that be? After all, Paul was a Jew. But his ethnic identity was not his primary identity anymore. It was something that he felt he could take on or put off like a garment. His third race, being in Christ, was now more permanent and more central to his true identity. He finishes this way. Paul says elsewhere that those of us who are, there's that word, in Christ are bound together into one body, making us one new man. We just looked at that. Paul never ceased to identify with his Jewish and Roman background, using either when it served the purposes of the gospel. But his Christian identity was weightier to him than his race. Those are very profound words. Let me see if I can simplify it just a little bit. I am not a white Christian. I am a Christian who is white. I am not an American Christian. I am a Christian who happens to live in America. You see, my primary identity is that I am in Christ, but I want you to know very much that my culture is white American. So those distinctives are who I am, but they are dwarfed under the heading of being a follower of Jesus Christ. I have some wonderful, wonderful dear friends in here who come from a very different ethnic background than I do. And uh, I have lunch with several of them, and uh, I'm quick to run up and, and you know, glad hand them and, and to hug them and enjoy them as brothers in Christ. And uh, I don't kiss them. I just want you to know that. I, I draw my line to kissing. But I really, really enjoy these, these other brothers in Christ. Now, they are not black Christians. They are Christians who happen to be black. Or Filipino Christians. They're Christians who are Filipino. And they're not American Christians. They're Christians who happen to live in America. And so that means because our highest common denominator is the fact that we are in Christ, we can keep the distinctives and the uniquenesses of our race and culture together. So this becomes multiculturalism, unity in diversity, and it works in Jesus. It doesn't work in the world because they don't have Jesus. And so this is the beauty of what the body of Christ is supposed to be like. We come together from differing backgrounds, differing uh, ethnicities, differing cultures, but under the headship of Christ, we can enjoy each other. Let me just say this. My goal in hanging out with my black brothers is not to make them white, okay? That's not my intent. My goal in hanging out with my African-American brothers is not that they turn into me. Dude, he is about as white bread as you can get. Now just imagine, not just this, but imagine a church like this. Oh, oh no, 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 I ruined it. 
No, 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 go back. It was too much fun. There we go. I overdid it. Imagine a church like this. Does this creep you out? It really should. And yet, sadly, this is most churches in America. They are homogeneous groups of people who look alike, who sound alike, who talk alike, who like all the same things. Where is the power of the gospel in that? Where is the power of Jesus, not just to reconcile us to God, but to reconcile us to very different peoples in ourselves and thus become a light in a divisive world where people say, how do you do that? And we say, Jesus. That's what it's supposed to be like. So, so too many churches are, are homogeneous churches. They, they are, are so um, Ill alike. They, they suffer from uniformity which is boring, and it's scary. I think some people look around at the church and they see God can save white people because there are white churches, and God can save black people because there are black churches, and God can save Hispanic people because there are Hispanic churches, and God can save uh, different people groups because they have churches that are just full of that kind of people. But can God reconcile different peoples together in one body, bringing the beauty of Christ alive today. And I'm here to tell you that if you're from white bread, Maine, the opportunities for a multicultural church are nil. But if you're outside a major metropolitan city, there is no excuse for not having a multicultural body. That is what every church should seek to do. It should seek to reflect the complexion of the community it is in to show the people the power of the gospel to bring unity in light of diversity. Somebody said this, beauty is not seen in uniformity, but in unity and diversity. We are not to be blind to differences, but to appreciate our differences. If you are colorblind, you miss out on the beauty of all that God has made. We don't need to do away with our differences, we need to rejoice in diversity. Isn't that better? Isn't that beautiful? I mean to tell you, we've got different ages and stages of life and different ethnic groups and differing peoples from so many different backgrounds, and yet they're all together in one church under the leadership of Jesus Christ, worshiping, praising, loving God together. That's powerful. That's powerful. We live in a world right now that is fracturing everywhere. And what we're trying to do is we are trying to make patriotism and nationalism the rallying call. I just want to say this, it won't work. It won't work. Because nationalism has been called the lowest form of pride. And cultural distinctions and ethnic distinctions will always trump Sorry, <laughs> that was a bad use of words. Um, it will, will always overcome nationalism. So we're going to try really hard to go down this pathway together, but mark my words, it will not work. It doesn't work in the world. And we're seeing that everywhere. But it can work in the church. And in the church, we can show the rest of the world what it 
really means to know God and the difference he makes in making us the best version of humanity there is. This is exciting stuff, church. This is exciting stuff. We live in an exciting age. There's chaos all around, but we get the privilege of being Christ in this midst. I don't know about you, but I'm excited because the opportunities for the gospel are growing and growing, and we have such an opportunity to be alike if we get it right. If we get it right. I'm just going to uh, quickly uh, walk by a few representations of the church. Um, First of all, what I'm talking about as the body of Christ is that we should not be a bag of marbles. That's not what the church should be. The church should not be a collection of marbles, each a distinct color, each marble retaining its unique color. But when it's placed in proximity with other marbles, they don't actually change the other ones near it. The danger is we can roll in here in our little self-contained, isolated worlds, praise Jesus together, and roll back out and never be any different for it. That is not what Jesus had in mind. That is not his idea. You see, if you're a red marble and I'm a blue marble, the best we can do is recognize that we are different, but we don't become different as a result. That's not what God wants. So God doesn't want us to be a bag of marbles. Um, Another analogy that's very well known in America that we like to use a lot is the idea of a melting pot. Now, I couldn't find a melting pot other than the restaurant called the melting pot. So if you recognize that, you're smart. Again, this is a familiar one for us as Americans. Uh, The theory is simply this. People from countries all over the world come together here to form one nation where we're all Americans. This metaphor implies that during the process, our diverse backgrounds, cultures, and religions melt away as we form a homogeneous American stew. As I've already said, that can't work. Patriotism and nationalism are not strong enough to overcome uh, unique uh, ethnic and cultural differences. Besides, if it did work, if it would actually work, let's change the metaphor just a little bit and make it paint. What happens if you take various colors of paint and start mixing them all together? Does it make a profound new paint? Black. Brown, red, yellow, white, black, brown, red, yellow, black, brown, red, white. What are you going to wind up with? It is going to be so drab and so gross, you would never want to use it. And in a very real way, anything that tells us that our distinctives are wrong and we need to do away with them in order to become part of this new whole ultimately makes us bland. That's not what Jesus has in mind for the church. So not a bag of marbles rolling in and out unchanged, Not a melting pot where we actually lose our distinctions, but a better analogy that actually captures what the church is supposed to be like is probably better looked at as beef stew. Beef stew. Now, I'm really pushing it, you know, doing this right afternoon, putting all that food up there like that. But think about it. Each of us is a component of the stew. Beef, carrots, onions, broth. While each ingredient, think culture, think culture, think culture, is different, when combined together, the various ingredients season each other. 
The result is something more than the sum of the parts. And this is the critical point. While each ingredient retains its distinctive taste, no part of the stew tastes exactly how it would on its own. And that's the body of Christ. We are meant to flavor one another, to expand the beauty of what this thing is to be the church. True biblical community is a multicultural, multi-generational, multi-ethnic group of God's people. One where our differences rub off on one another and our distinctive ethnic features and our various cultures are not destroyed, but they are amplified and redeemed. Think about this with me. God doesn't want to wipe out our cultures and create this one bland thing. In the eternal state, actually in Revelation chapter 5, it says that Jesus Christ is going to redeem a people from every tribe, every tongue, and every ethnos, every people group. And when you get to the end of the book of Revelation, chapter 22, we're in the eternal state. It says this, and there will be 12 trees which will give it forth its 12 fruits, and it will be for the healing of the nations. So even in the eternal state, we are going to be in this perfect environment of perfect cultures under the leadership of Christ, flavoring and challenging and loving and enjoying each other in the kingdom. Why wait till then when he says we can do it today? This is his plan for us, church, that we would be different in a beautiful multicultural, diverse, though unified in Christ. How do we do this? How do we do this? I've about run out of time. I love you, JD. How? How do we pull this off? Well, I hate to tell you we're all out of time, so we won't talk about the how, okay? We're good. Quickly, quickly. How is this even possible? Well, it begins with being reconciled to God. You can't get to Ephesians chapter uh, 2, verse 11 through 19, unless you have experienced Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. There's no way for us to experience the reconciliation amongst various peoples until we have been properly reconciled to God. <clears throat> Somebody said this many years ago. His name is Wilbur Reese. He said, I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to be equal a warm cup of milk and a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of God to make me love a black man or pick beets with a migrant worker. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want warmth of the womb, not new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack, please. I would like to buy $3 worth of God. Can I just say to you, you can't. It doesn't work that way. If you're going to come to Christ, you're going to come on his terms. And you're going to get down, humble yourself in repentance. And in faith, in Christ, you'll be given the gift of eternal life. And then God's going to work out his process through you. And that is to bring reconciliation between us and other people groups around us. So it begins by being properly related to God. Secondly, we need to be more than just not racist. We need to be more than just not racist. You see, saying I'm not racist is like saying I'm not mean. Good for you. You're not mean. Okay. But you see, not being mean falls a long way short of love. 
and truly loving one another. Jesus said that all men will know you are my disciples by your love, your sacrificial love for each other. And he even tells us to love our enemies. So not to just not be racist is not enough. We need to take the next step forward and actually start embracing people different than us. I found it interesting that when God wanted to help the Apostle Peter overcome his racism, his ethnocentrism of being a Jew, he didn't say, Peter, stop being racist. Rather, he told him to go and embrace Cornelius, a Roman centurion, go into his house, eat with him, worship with him. Now you get it. You see, there's the key. It's not just not being something. Is proactively embracing and loving people different than us. I want to encourage you. Find a brother or a sister in the Lord who comes from a different background than you. Invite them over to your house. Sit down and say, what was it like to grow up? Where you grew up? How did you meet Jesus? And then likewise, share your story. And in the process, what's happening is we're flavoring each other. We are becoming much more than we could ever be independent from each other. So it begins here. I'm going to throw this idea out. Is Dennis here? Dennis Faye? Dennis, Dennis. Oh, he's back there. Dennis, take this down, please. Uh, I think that as for our next potluck, uh, we need to have a multi-ethnic potluck. Amen? I think, I, I just quickly wrote down some, some various backgrounds here, thinking that if we could ever get all the foods together from all these different groups, we're going to enjoy ourselves. This would be awesome. You see, there are various white cultures represented in this room. There are some people who are from the South, and y'all make good food down in the South. Uh, maybe you can bring grits. Um, I'm from Maine, and I'll bring oatmeal, okay? So yes, okay, so we'll have those well represented. But you know, thinking through, we have people who, who, sh who are here from the beautiful African-American culture, from the Philippines, from England, from Guyana, from Jamaica, from Africa, from Latin America. If we could just get together and have a multi-ethnic potluck, I think it would be one step in the right direction to really appreciate the uniquenesses that God doesn't want to erase, but have us embrace. This stuff can be a lot of, a lot of fun. Thirdly, prayerfully elevate your third race. Ethnocentrism, racism, nationalism goes to the heart. And it's only by actively confessing our need of being in Christ first and foremost that we will ever start to realize progress in this area. And so I want to encourage you to be prayerful as you work forward to really appreciate all that God wants to do in and through you. Lastly, and I'll finish with this, and uh, this actually speaks to the largest people group in this church, which is mine. The last thing in the world we should ever do is try to make uniformity out of everybody else. The only way we're going to move from uniformity to having true biblical unity is we get over ourselves. We subtract I and subtract our forms, our preferences from the mix. If we can subtract I and our preferences from the mix, you're going to discover we have a growing unity and diversity. This is where I could do the talk about, it's not about music. Or it is about music. Or I could do the talk, it's not about leadership. Or it really is about leadership. Further discussions to be had another day. I'm going to end with this. Do nothing 
from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others. Put cultures, ethnic groups in there. Count other cultures and ethnic groups even more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only on his own interests, his own ethnic uh, background, his own culture, but also on the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Humility, humility, humility. It's our time, church. And if we do it right, we are going to be a very bright light in this dark and lost world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, the word has come right after us this morning. Um, Dealing with the issues of the heart and of a fallen heart are never easy. But when we start to talk about issues of race and culture, these things become even harder. I pray that your word will have full effect this morning, and that you would help us to become a diverse peoples under the unity of Jesus, and may we continue to grow brightly in this way. Father, I thank you for the beautiful people that today compose Grace Church. We have so many beautiful, beautiful people from so many different backgrounds, so many different ethnicities and cultures, and yet they're here today because of Jesus. I pray that we will grow in the beauty of all that that means. Help us to truly flavor one another for your glory. Amen. God bless you. God bless you.